If you would turn to Psalm 107, we'll be reading the whole, whole psalm. It's a little bit longer for, for the psalms. Um, fits well in the Old Testament. We've been going through different psalms to highlight different uh, genres, different themes. We've seen historical psalms, psalms of thanks. This is a covenant psalm, a psalm that talks about God's covenant faithfulness. So let's read this psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness, and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God, and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord for his, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven and went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. 
He turned the desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all the wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's pray. O God, help us to see your steadfast love. Help us to understand these words today that you have given to us to remind us who we are and who you are. And help us, give us, through these words, through the preaching of your word, your spirit that will turn us back, return us to you, return us to your holy city, that we may dwell in your sanctuary and worship you and give thanks to you forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is your first instinct when faced with the promises of God in Scripture, all the promises that God has given you? What's the default reaction? If you're anything like me, there might be some hesitation or some doubt in believing all the promises of God. Can God really do it? It's a difficult thing to unreservedly believe that God really will save us out from all of our sufferings, all of them. And that's what Psalm 107 is about. It's a reminder and it's proof that God can and will rescue his people. God can and really will do what he has promised. Unfortunately for us, we are weak, our hearts waver, and we must be reminded of this fact that God is faithful to his people in all circumstances. And he will deliver us, his people, from their distress. Instead of believing these things, we busy ourselves with what appear to be good things. We pursue stability, smarts, savviness, profitability, all fine things. But without God, they easily and quickly turn into pursuit of false rest. Freedom from responsibility, self-actualization, or finding our success in what we have accomplished. But these things do not fulfill. They cannot satisfy the soul. And they leave us, every single person who chases after them, in sorrow and in pain. C.S. Lewis very famously talked about these things in his essay, The Weight of Glory. He says, Indeed, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, 
we are far too easily pleased. So what is the point of studying Psalm 107 today? I hope that as we study it together, we'll see all the vain things of this world, all the pursuits that we run after will fail. But because God is faithful to his covenant, we can and must trust in him, turn to him in repentance, and give him great thanks. To see this, we're going to look at the four different examples of different stories, different vignettes, these little pictures of what uh, God has done to his people, how God has brought his people out of misery. So through these vignettes, we're going to see, one, first, the failure of life apart from God. Second, the cry for help and why it's important. And finally, the steadfast love of the God of every circumstance. So first, the failure of life apart from God. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That statement is true. It's also difficult for us to believe, to fully come to grips with. And it was difficult to see in the world 3,000 years ago as well. That's why this psalm was needed for God's people. So Psalm 107 gives us four little short stories, little vignettes, to show the proof and reality of God's faithfulness. The first vignette shows us the failed search for rest. We have a great need for peace, not just a good nap on Sunday afternoon, though I enjoy that myself, but better peace. Not just some kind of reconciliation between diametrically opposed political views. Not just a ceasefire between two sovereign nations. Oh, we long for that kind of peace, but we need more. Verses 4 and 5 talk about how some people have wandered, unable to find a city to dwell in. They're going through the wilderness, and they're looking for peace. They're looking for the blessing of God to find a city, a dwelling place, a promised land. Our world is full of great cities, places where businessmen play with money like kings, where you can pursue the American dream of making a name for yourself, for pursuing things like the betterment of man, more knowledge, more creativity. While these things may have a glimmer of God's original creation mandate to man they, to have dominion and fill the earth. In our world, the pursuit of something better often ends up looking like the pursuit of money, sex, power, fame, and autonomy. We see there, this elsewhere in Scripture as well, like in the incident at Babel. Genesis 11, God, the, the people, humanity, want to build this great city so that they can ascend to heaven and meet God on their own terms. They want to make man the pinnacle of existence, but there's one problem. Man's heart is broken. Because our hearts are broken, we pursue things that seemingly will make us happy, but in the end result in more misery and suffering. Now, you may be going through a wilderness of suffering, Maybe you're not pursuing worldly peace. While we all sin and our sin does cause us pain, 
we can go through wilderness and trials that are not caused by our own sin. Sometimes those around us hurt us. Sometimes this broken world crashes down upon us and brings us great misery. There's nothing we can do to prevent it. And you need deliverance. You might feel like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego right now. As they faced King Nebuchadnezzar, he was so furious that they wouldn't obey his command that he heated the furnace seven times his normal amount so that he could throw them in. Maybe you're feeling the heat of life that feels like it's about to consume you. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had something to say to Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to what they said. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden images that you have set up. The if not is in reference to if God will save them out of the hand of the king. But they say, God will surely deliver us out of your hand. They knew God could save them from the fiery furnace. They knew God would save them out of this situation, whether through the fire or from it. Whether from the fires of life or through the fires of life, God will save you. True deliverance isn't necessarily a removal from suffering. It's God's drawing us back to him no matter the circumstances. The hunger that we feel, that longing for the rest and peace of God can only come from God's promises. Only the city designed and crafted by God for his saints will give us that dwelling place that is full of peace and rest. The second vignette shows us the failed run from God. <clears throat> Verses 10 through 12 depict the natural state of man after the fall. Under the curse of Adam, we are stuck, sitting in darkness, dead to God. And this because of our nature and our own sin. We have rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Sin is a rebellion, a running away from God at full sprint. Without God, we are prisoners to death and we are doomed to pay the price for our sin. Sometimes God's mercy means that we are more sorely pressed. God doesn't just leave us to our own devices, but he has mercy on us by pressing us harder under the weight of our own sin so that we have nowhere to turn. Verse 12 says that God bowed down their hearts with hard labor so that they recognized that there was no one to help apart from God. If God is truly merciful... He will not let us dabble in sin. He will show us the great cost at which we continue in it. Is your suffering pushing you away from God? Or is it causing you to cry out to Him? It's easy for us to double down and pretend like our effort will get us through, but that is utterly wrong. When I get stressed and burdened down by my own sin or by the effects of a sinful world, what is my reaction? 
I wish I could say that I run to God immediately, every time. Cry out for him to release me from my prison of shame and misery. But it's, it's a hard battle. It's not the reality. In the midst of what already feels like too much, it's hard to cry out to God. But God is the only one who can fix it. He's the only one that can rescue us. He's the only one that knows exactly what you're going through and will be with you every moment of your suffering. And by God's grace, as I practice returning to God in my distress, I slowly, painfully at times, get better at it. Slowly and painfully, God is teaching me and you, through your distress, how to run, return to him. The third vignette shows us the failed pursuit of self in verses 17 and 18. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. Apart from knowing God, our path is quite literally a fool's errand. These people are marked with a loathing of food, a wasting away unto death, is what it says. Unless God saves them, they will be crushed under the weight and curse of sin. While all these vignettes could be applied and found to be true in our society, in, our, in the world, life without God in general, I believe that this one in particular has a strong connection with our world and society. The mantra of our world today is that you should do whatever you can, whatever you want, whatever you desire. It's not only your right, but it's your duty. You are the only one who can forge your path, and you have the duty to do that. Like the great philosopher Frank Sinatra saying, For what is man, what has he got? If not himself, then he is not. Not to say the things that he truly feels, and not the words of someone who kneels. Let the record show, I took all the blows, and I did it my way. I did it my way. And I did it without kneeling to the tyranny of a God who created me and can rightfully tell me what to do, what is good, what is true, what is holy. That's the mantra of our culture. And from confused identities to murder disguised behind choice to abandonment of morality in favor of the freedom to follow the heart of a fool, we live in a world abounding in iniquities, and all the more, the suffering and affliction that follows. Church, while we rightly stand against the lies of this world, I want you to know that you have something that this world desperately needs. You know the, the only God who can really bring hope and healing. As a Christian, if you are suffering because of your sin, take heart. You have hope that this world does not have, that God has not left you. He will not leave you. So run to him and remember the hope that he promises. Fourth, fourth vignette shows us the failed search for freedom. Much like the fool's way, verses 23 through 27 depict man's broken desire to find autonomy 
and self-actualization, man making the most of himself apart from God. But how do ships and commerce equate to a search for freedom? Is God saying that trade and capitalism is a sinful pursuit? Not exactly. Notice that each of these pictures of rebellion, these vignettes, against the rebellion against God is actually mirrored in Scripture, in the life of Israel. Wilderness, slavery, exile, all seen. And this one very closely relates to the story of Jonah. While Jonah may not have come on the scene yet when this psalm was written, his story gives us a great lens to view this picture. What's going on here? Well, Jonah was called by God to be a prophet by God and was told again by God to go to the people of Nineveh to preach repentance and mercy. Jonah was appalled and instead went down to the coast and did business on the great waters. He purchased his patches to flee from God's will. He attempted to flee from the presence of God, and then, as it portrays in in this Psalm 107, God lifted up the waves of the sea. Jonah mounted up to heaven and went down to the depths, and he was cast into the sea to die. Jonah's running away from God and doing business on the sea is an example of the theme in Scripture of this kind of sea imagery equated with running away from God. It's not uncommon in the Old Testament to have the sea as a representation of a licentious culture, a licentious lifestyle. Those who have rejected God and forged pagan cultures based on wealth and autonomy. They were, as it were, separated from God's people by a great body of water. And they thought that they were untouchable by God. But they were mistaken. While the Israelites were the people of the promised land, the people like Philistines, Tyre, and uh, even where where Jonah tried to flee to, Tarshish, were known for their pagan practices and their great wealth. Because of the sea, they were prosperous. And in Isaiah 23, we've uh, studied this several weeks ago, a long time ago now, God calls out judgment on these people. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Lyre is laid waste. Without house or harbor, from the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. Be still, O inhabitants of the coast, the merchants of Sidon, who cross the sea have filled you. And on many waters your revenue was the grain of Shehor, the harvest of the Nile. You were the merchant of the nations. Wail, O ships of Tarshish for your stronghold is laid waste. These nations did not fear God, but acted in defiance to his will. They set up cities of wealth, claiming to be without need of God. They were the epitome of the self-made man. But for all their wealth and prosperity, for all their strength and power, they too went the way of Babel and were cast down for their pride against God. That's why God throws the sea into a commotion and sends his own who have fallen in with these traitors, these traitors, 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 
both. Um, God sends the storm against them into a maelstrom of misery. God will not stand his people being swept away by the pride which tears us away from him. God will not let us put him aside or count him as secondary to our endeavors in life. He is a jealous God who must be first in your life. He will cast aside those, he will cast those he loves into turmoil so that they remember that he alone is God. What then are we left with? Does God leave his children in the midst of their anguish and their affliction? By no means. God will rescue us from our suffering, but he teaches us to cry out to him so that we might see our need for him. And that's our second point today. First point is longer. Second and third points are a little bit shorter, just so you know. So the cry for help. God doesn't leave us in our sin. He will not for his own sake. But he does make us feel our need for him so that we cry out for him in repentance. Notice how in all four of these vignettes, the verse, this one verse is present. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Verses 6, 13, 19, and 28. Repetition is important in Scripture. And this one's repeated four times. And in fact, the only difference in the original text of the Hebrew between these verses is the way that God rescues his people. Um, in verse 6, God delivers his people. In verses 13 and 19, God saves. And in verse 28, God brings them out. There is no limit to what God can do in rescuing his people from their distress. He will surely do it. However, God often waits until we recognize that we are hopeless without him and cry out. Because until we cry out, the idols of pride and self-sufficiency linger on. Just this past April, there was a six-person crew who sailed, set sail off the, the coast of Brazil on their boat. They were caught in a storm. And then their small kitchen on the boat caught fire. And so their boat was burning down. They were on the side of this, uh, this storm, and they had to abandon ship. Their ship sank. And they were left on this bar, this small island called um, uh, Arrow Island. And they were stuck there. Bear Island, no supplies. All they had was the supplies that they brought with them. They had no hope to get off this tiny island. And they spent 17 days cast away on this island until they were desperate. You would have thought that they were desperate from the beginning, but it took them 17 days to figure out, write down a note, small piece of paper, stuffed it in a plastic bottle, tied it to one of the buoys from the ship and desperately sent it off, their last-ditch effort. While the message was found by a fishing boat, which quickly alerted the Brazilian Navy, who sent out a helicopter to land, and the six-person crew was rescued. They were a little dehydrated. 
but they were cleared medically and then they were reunited with their families. What an amazing picture of the kind of rescue that we need. The problem is we don't recognize that we are desperate. It takes us a lot longer than 17 days to figure that out. We think we're doing just fine on our own, when in reality we need to be daily calling out to God for help and rescue. We must see that apart from God's work, our efforts and pursuits in life are like the way of the fool. We think we're going down to Tarshish to make a profit, but the waves of reality will soon crash down upon us. We must always be crying out to God to save us and to help us see him as our all in all. And I know in a church this size, there are likely to be some who still don't believe that God can really save you. For a start, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad that you can come and listen and hear the claim of God that he can and he will save you if you cry out to him. That's something most of the world outside this church doesn't want to hear. But for you who might be sitting here today wrestling with what God is saying here, I want you to truly examine the world's hope, the only hope that they have. That maybe, if you get lucky, you can get lots of money and power. Maybe, if you, you, maybe you can live life with all the toys if you work really hard. If you're truly bent on making a name for yourself, you might gain some worldly pleasure. But it will not last. It cannot last. This world always ends in brokenness, and that brokenness isn't just death, but it is. Where you lose everything you toiled for and worked so hard over, death will come. But that brokenness also includes suffering, anxiety, depression, worry, anger, jealousy, and deep down, that never-gone pain of being an enemy of God. You can never cover that up with money or fame, sex or power. That is the rock bottom that this world has no answer for. But God has an answer. Finally, we see point three. The steadfast love of the God of every circumstance. I've glossed over it, mentioned it a couple times, but the whole point of this psalm is God's covenant love. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and has gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. And again, four times throughout the chapter, it says, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Many of you know what kind of love this is. It's God's hesed love, his covenant love. Hesed is the, the word that wraps all of that up. It's God's love that he has given to his people. It's the kind of love that binds God to his people forever. It's not just a I like you kind of love. It's the kind of love that bends the reality of our lives, the plan of history, every detail of every day, so that God will rescue you and bring you to your home, to his rest, to his peace. His city, a dwelling place of true peace, 
is the kind of love that satisfies the longing soul, shatters the bonds of death, and brings his people back to his sanctuary, his temple. This Hesed love is unlike any other love that you know. Sally Lloyd-Jones writes in her children's devotional that it's his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Isn't that beautiful? It says, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Verses 33 through 42 just show just how far God is willing to go to rescue his people, to return his people to him. He turns rivers into deserts and deserts into pools of water. He lets his hungry people dwell in good land and feast on the bountiful harvest that he provides. He breaks down the proud. He raises up the needy out of their affliction. That's the kind of love that sends his only son, Jesus, to be our Messiah, to be our Savior. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we could not. He died a sinner's death, and then he rose again to glory all so that God could wrap you in his arms forever. Believe in him, all of you. And then give thanks to God. Throughout all these vignettes, the response of the people is to turn and to give thanks. It's to turn and worship the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God. The salvation evokes a covenant love in return. God shows his covenant love to us, and we, in return, show a covenant love to him, a love that cannot help but pour out our thanks and our offerings and our true worship of him. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Whoever is wise, let him attend these things. Let them consider the steadfast love the Hesed love of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have brought us out of many trials, and you will bring us out of more. Whether we are in the deepest, darkest valleys of the shadow of death, whether we are fleeing from your presence, whether we are seeking your face and are burdened by the sin of this world, we cry out to you, O oh God. Restore to us your great mercy and grace. Give us the peace that only comes from that eternal city, the true peace of heaven. Help us then to live as your children, giving glory to you, giving hope to those around us, and worshiping you forever. We pray this in your name. Amen.